0: On this episode I'm speaking with Andrew Katz, founder of Katz Development. Since 2015, Andrew has participated in the development of approximately 350 million of multi-family, office, retail, and hospitality projects, totaling roughly a million square feet between Colorado and Ohio. This is a really fun one for me because I had the fortune of, of meeting Andrew quite a few years ago in the Rhino neighborhood of Denver. We've stayed in touch ever since, And through COVID to now, uh, his new mass timber project, Return to Form, is finally taking shape and set to break ground later in 2023. Really great conversation with Andrew, learning more about his upbringing, how he got to where he is today, Um, and of course, talking mass timber, challenges, opportunities, and some really good conversation around Return to Form, a 12-story multifamily project coming to the River North neighborhood in Denver. Without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Andrew and get going. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I I love getting started with the where you're from stories and I'd love to hear about where you grew up, what your family and friends were like, if you had any family destinations that in particular stood out for you, all that good stuff. So let's get started there.
1: Sure, so not super exciting. Grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. have two younger brothers, a handful of friends that actually a lot of them uh, now live out here in Denver uh, nearby as well, which is pretty fun. Um, But yeah, very typical, you know, Midwest upbringing. Um, we, uh, We would actually come out to Colorado frequently on vacation, which was, you know, we were very fortunate to be able to come out here to go skiing and hiking in the summers and Uh, was a big part of what led me to denver ultimately but uh Mm. but yeah i spent my whole childhood in cincinnati i went to school you know also nearby in columbus at ohio state and um stayed in that general midwest region until until i was done with school
0: nice And, and so from a i want to pause and go back to the uh vacation destination uh, comment because that's actually something that I was fortunate enough to do as well. My, my family would always pack us up. We would drive overnight, uh, to get to Colorado. We would do camping and hiking trips. Uh, sometimes we would stay in tents and then as we got older, we would rent a cabin for a week or whatever and do a bunch of hiking around. So, but it sounds like a lot of your trips were ski focused. That's really cool. Did you do any particular destinations in Colorado or did you go to different, uh, ski resorts?
1: Yeah, we, uh, we skied in Colorado. We skied in Utah a little bit, uh, but it was like my dad. He didn't have the ability to grow up learning how to ski. He learned uh, much later in life, and I think he just made it a, you know, a, a point of his to teach us when we were young. And so, you know, we learned how to ski when we were like two or three years old. My brothers and I just on the little like leash thing where you, you know, yeah. ski between your your dad's uh, legs and. Um, I grew up learning on a, a tiny little hill in Indiana called Perfect North. And, um, you know, when we felt confident enough there, uh, parents took us out to Colorado. We'd, we'd ski at Vail a lot. Uh, we'd ski in um, Deer Valley in Utah sometimes. But, you know, it was always like the highlight of my year was the, the four or five days that we could go skiing in Colorado. It was just such a different you know, obviously, different than the hill in Indiana, and just felt like such oh, a big yeah. world and um you know it was definitely something we we always look forward to.
0: I remember one time you told me a story about a particular hike in Colorado um there's There's a couple of fourteen a pair of fourteeners um uh, their names are gray Grays and Tories, mm-hmm. and it's a really popular front range hike. Um, but there's a particular way that you can access the, the peaks uh, up this ridge called Kelso Ridge. And I remember laughing with you about it because we've both done that route now, but we also both have the the mindset of what it feels like to be a Midwesterner to go to Colorado and do these types of things, which um, as, as anyone who has had experience like that knows, it doesn't always turn out the best um what was that what was that like was that when you were really little or were you a teenager when did you get to have those experiences
1: yeah we started uh we started trying out 14ers when i was i was probably 15 i think was when we did our first one and so you know we can (laughs) hike all we want in ohio um but it's just it doesn't it doesn't compare you're not getting the same obviously, uh, in terms of altitude and, and just, uh, it's just a whole different world. And so we went yeah. out, um, I remember my dad was all excited. He's like, I've, you know, been reading up about these 14ers. I, I, uh, I think we should go give them a try. And so we planned this trip to go. we were staying in Georgetown and we would climb Grays and Tories. It was our first one. And, uh, I guess, uh, he felt that the standard route wasn't, um, you know, we were too good for the standard route given our Ohio hiking experience. Um, and so we took this Kelso Ridge route, which, you know, on paper didn't seem crazy, uh, but we uh, we went for it. We had absolutely no 14er experience, no experience being at that kind of altitude. We flew in from Ohio the night before, woke up at, you know, two in the morning to get to the trailhead and um, it was uh, it was one of the most fun hikes I've ever done. Kelso Ridge is a really cool, fun trail, uh, but it was—I was not prepared for, you know, class three, <laughs> class four scrambling and exposure mm-hmm. and knife's edge, and uh, there was some interesting moves on that trail. But it—it yeah. uh, it was a, a fun experience and definitely, you know, put us on the path to we we start to come out and climb fourteeners every summer yeah. after that for years.
0: So, any so f- for anyone watching or listening definitely contact Andrew for a self-guided tour up <laughs> Kelso Ridge in the future. I'd go uh, back,
1: but I think I know, <laughs> I think I know what I'm getting into at this point.
0: Right, right. Well, let's, let's transition to real estate a bit. Did you always grow up and did you head into college with this like idea that, okay, real estate's going to be my thing. I know this going in, um, uh, was it pre-planned for you or, or where did that spark start for you?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, uh, my dad is a developer, and he's he's still in Cincinnati. Um, you know, I grew up watching him. And he's an entrepreneur, he, you know, started his his own company. And uh, when you grow up in the real estate business, it's just it's always around you, um, especially in an entrepreneurial, you know, one where you just get involved in all kinds of stuff. And then, um, you know, we go and look at his look at the properties and, you know, just constantly talking about um, different deals that he's working on. And so from a young age, it was always kind of there and something that we were learning and something that we were exposed to. And it was a really appealing thing for us to see our dad, who just had this, you know, he was always obviously busy, but had total control over his schedule and, you know, was able to come to our, you know, school sport events or whatever. And he Mm. would, you know, always had time to do whatever it is that he wanted to do Mm -hmm. and so that was um that was really appealing and i just in my head i was always you know dad's your hero i uh i always wanted to just do what he did and as i got older it started to become more clear what that actually means but if you would ask me you know from a very young age what i wanted to do when i grew up it was to be a real estate developer and i bet when you know i first started saying that i had no idea what that even meant, but, yeah. um, it has been pretty consistent.
0: And you went to, uh, Ohio state for, I believe it was business and real estate. If I'm recalling correctly there, um, as you moved through your college experience and, in taking these courses in, in both business and real estate, um, did you have your eye on any particular city? Were you thinking you'd go back to Colorado or what, what was in the cards for you post college? What, what did that look like?
1: I think I always wanted to move to Colorado um, from when I started going to school at Ohio State. It just, I don't remember, remember exactly when I kind of made that decision in my head, but I just, I remember throughout college, just that was what I would tell people I'm going to go, I'm going to move to Denver, I'm going to be in real estate. I didn't know what particularly I was going to do in real estate. I didn't know Denver at all. Um, you know, we, would go skiing out here, but we never really spent a lot of time in the city. We would always just you know, drive by on the way to the mountains. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's just I, I knew that real estate was very um, fluid and there were a lot of different ways you could go with it, especially if you were going to be entrepreneurial within it and. You can kind of do it anywhere, and so I figured it would be more fun to do it in a place where I can drive to go skiing on the weekends, which, again, was yeah. like the highlight of my year and it was a whole production, you had to pack up, get on a plane, drive to, you know, I-70 to Vail and, you know, to have access to that whenever you wanted just sounded pretty appealing.
0: And so you arrived in Denver in the mid-2010s uh, and you jumped right into the real estate scene, but but potentially not in the way that listeners might expect. So. And Denver at the time was, was changing quite a bit already. Um, personally, I moved to Denver in the mid, uh, two thousands and completely different scene between, you know, 2005 and 2015, as you can imagine. Um, but okay. So picture it, we're uh, roughly around 2015. Where did you start when you came out to Denver? What did that ex first experience, uh, what was that comprised of?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I finished, um, I finished school. And my main goal was to find a job, just something to bring me to Denver. Um, I was pretty focused on starting in retail brokerage. That was what my dad started in. It was kind of, um, you know, following his advice and and his path. Um, So I reached out to a bunch of different brokerages after graduation and came out a few times to interview with a few of them and eventually um, uh, a a group here called Sullivan Hayes told me to, to come on out. And um, so I I moved out here kind of late half of uh, 2015. And yeah, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I stayed in like an extended hotel for a week or so until I found an apartment. I, I was used to suburban Ohio. I, I figured I would move somewhere in the tech center or in one of the suburbs or Golden or something like that. I ended mm-hmm. up Instead, uh, moving into a building in Cap Hill and um, decided to try out you know being more um, into the city to start. And so, so, yeah, that was it. Moved to Cap Hill and started out in retail brokerage and just uh, figuring it out from there.
0: One of the things that you told me um, early on is that you remember that time as being the, the days where you drove around for hours on end, not oh, making yeah. much money. Learning the city, yeah. trying to figure out who the players were and how, to, how things worked, more or less. Um, but I also remember um, one of the conversations we had around you having this realization around that time um, throughout, through that experience with Sullivan Hayes for a few years that you realized that wasn't necessarily where your passion was uh, really, really hitting you at the core where you wanted it to.
1: Yeah, I mean brokerage was a great place for me at that time in my life. It was a really great way to learn the city. It was a great way to just meet a ton of different people and then also just kind of learn the fundamentals of deal making and you know how how things were structured out here and you know, working with Sullivan Hayes was also just really fun. They were just really fun people. They took me in, they, you know, showed me around. I created some amazing relationships there that are still you know very important to me and um yeah it was a it was a great place to start i, I drove around constantly just you know it's a great way to mm. learn how the city works and um just start to pick spots and and
0: figure yeah out and you had this really cool habit that i want to i want to mention because i think the listeners will find this really cool but but you developed this I'll call it a habit Um, and it has to do with maps because as you became familiar with Denver, one of the things that you said you started to do was literally start to draw and outline your own maps and and, and notate your own uh, maps of the city as you learned it. Um, What did that, where did that come from? And what did that like physically actually look like? Was it like something that you wrote down? Was it digitally? How did these maps come about?
1: Yeah, it wasn't very, you know, structured or thoughtful. It was kind of um, back in 2015, 2016. You know, I was exposed to all kinds of different deals. I was, um, I was working on anything from, you know, a suburban, um, a gas station deal out in Arvada to, you know, a coffee shop downtown somewhere. And and one of the neighborhoods that I just kept coming back to was was Rhino, the River North Arts District, kind of northeast of of town and um you know it was just really starting to take shape i think back then in 2015 and if you just drove around it it was not much to look at it's very Mm -hmm. you know jumbled there's new development here and there there's some built out streets there's some dirt roads there's some you know it's just kind of a hodgepodge and so i uh i just i noticed a lot of interest in and buying land there from larger developers, from multifamily developers, from folks who want to build, you know, the next school mixed use project. And so for me, a way to kind of organize the neighborhood was I, um, there's this program on Google maps, it's called my maps and you can kind of lay, um, you know, shapes and notes on top of, of Google maps. And so I just started doing that. Basically I would just lay, um, you know, if there was a site that, that traded, Uh, and it was in the newspaper or something, I would draw a little boundary around it, I would write in the notes who bought it, what they paid for it, what they were going to build here, uh, how big the site was, any kind of important information around the sale. And so I just, I just started doing that, I started accumulating all of these different sites from the newspapers and from, you know, people that I, I would just hear about different deals. And so it started to just create this big, you know, vision of the neighborhood and Uh, It helped me to recognize where gaps were. And then I I would go and, you know, approach those landowners and that would kind of lead to, you know, trying to find off market deals for, for some of these developers that wanted to buy these sites.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity boost rental rates and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at authenticff.com. And it seems like efforts like that or or maybe awareness like that actually led to the purchase of the site for your for the development that we're going to be talking about today, the mass timber development in Denver. Um, it, it probably didn't feel like a straight line like that, but I mean, as you were driving around and figuring things out, you did come across a site that you felt like fit the vision for what you had in mind at the time. Walk us through what that looked like. Uh, cause that was around 2016, 2017, I believe at the time.
1: Yep. Yeah, that was, that was around that time. Um, yeah, it wasn't even that thought out. It was, we, we didn't have a vision, I think at that point. The idea was more I knew I wanted to be in development. I knew that brokerage would lead me there, and the goal was to do something with with my dad out here in denver and so uh we came across this site, and it was you know right in the middle of that map that I made, and I just thought, man, this is a great location it was it was listed it's um it's right at the corner of 35th and Wincoop Street. So it's it's kind of, you know, straddles both sides of Rhino, uh, being right at that pedestrian bridge and by the light rail. And so, you know, I knew that it was too small for a lot of the um, a lot of the clients that I was looking for land sites for in Rhino. And so I didn't take it to any of them. I I just took it to my dad and I said, Hey, um, I don't know what we would do with this. But this is a really good development site. And um, it's too small for a lot of these bigger players, but we could do something fun here. And I know it doesn't look like much. I think that the, the, uh, the tenant who, or the, the guy who owned it at the time, I think they, there were, you know, chickens in the backyard. There was a chicken coop. It was, it was very <laughs> wild west and Brighton yeah. Boulevard hadn't quite been redone yet. Uh, we knew a lot of stuff was coming and that map really helped paint the picture of it. But it was pretty rough when we when we came across the site. and so yeah, not very linear. We just we like the location and we like the price and and I' convinced Dad that we we should buy this.
0: Yeah, and for anyone who's familiar with with Denver or or has been familiar with Denver over the last ten years or so, I mean, um, you know this site um, with Andrew's company is right over by the source, uh, the original source, uh, now the source hotel as well um, Zeppelin station right along Brighton Boulevard, which to your point, you know, was sort of trying to figure itself out, uh, back in 2017. But, um, I digress around that time, you ended up connecting with a mentor of yours, uh, someone who's helped you tremendously kind of find your feet, get your feet wet and and now sort of find your, find your sea legs, um, as you become a, a young developer in, in Denver. Um, and it is connected to a site called, um, moto, I believe, um, on eighth and Sherman in cap Hill in Denver. Tell us about that moment. Cause I think that's a really poignant moment in your, in your brief journey so far, but I think it's really cool.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I told you I was all over the map in terms of where I was going to live when I first moved here. And I settled on, uh, living in this, this building that had just opened called moto. It's eighth and Sherman. Um, just really cool, funky design. I, I just I liked the look of the building and the feeling of it. I you know took the smallest uh, studio I could find in there. And um, one day I was walking out of the building and I saw this group of of people in the lobby, kind of talking about it. And it I just was walking by and heard some of the conversation. And I realized that these people were the developers in the building. And you know, growing up a lot of the development my dad was focused on was suburban retail stuff. So building Chipotle's, building strip centers, building, um, you know, just retail focused things in the suburbs. And so, you know, that stuff wasn't necessarily exciting to me on a personal level. Um, mm-hmm. but what was exciting to me was design and urbanism. And, um, you know, this group of people had just built this building in this urban neighborhood that had really cool design. And I had to, learn more. And so I walked up to, to uh, one of them. And I just said, Hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm a broker, I'm, I'm trying to get into development, I it seems like you guys developed this building, I'd love to, to get a copy with you and just learn about that process. And, and what this kind of development is. And so um, there's a guy named Jonathan Albert who's with Westfield company now. And, um, you know, he we went to coffee, we became great friends, I met his family, we, he was, really, truly, I think my first friend that I met out here in Denver and just totally took me under his wing. And um, he actually started in a similar way. He's, I think he actually started at Sullivan Hayes as well, um, was the first Hmm. stop in his career. And so, uh, you know, we just had a lot to connect over and had a lot of shared uh, interests on our personal lives. And so for me, it was just a It just felt like I had found something where my personal interests kind of, you know, meshed with, with the development world. And that was really exciting.
0: Yeah. You'd said to me that you felt like it was the first time that you could see an opportunity where design and real estate were really intersecting. And it sounded like that was something that really excited you and and kind of ignited a, um, or maybe forged together, like what kind of has become your passion as a, as a developer um, in your young career. Um, and so that actually springboarded you into this next phase of your career, which, uh, let's definitely talk about that briefly before we get into mass timber, but you ended up pivoting and, and working with Westfield, um, obviously a really well-respected firm in Denver, and they've been a part of many exciting projects in the city. Um, when you transitioned away from Sullivan Hayes into the Westfield position, did you end up sort of working on was it like a catch-all role with them, or did you work on specific uh, properties across the across the city?
1: Yeah, it was basically a catch-all role, um, but you know, they were focused on some larger projects at the time, and so those were the ones where I spent most of my time. but but yeah, it was I think twenty seventeen and we had bought our site. I was still with Sullivan Hayes. I you know bugged Jonathan incessantly saying, Hey, look, I've got this site. I know it's a good site in Rhino. I know, you know, Rhino, you know, this is a similar play to, to Modo. It's gotta be, um, what do I do with it? Can, you know, do you want to work together on it? This should mm-hmm. be a cool apartment building. This should be something interesting. And he's like, slow down. Um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have a lot of stuff I'm working on at Westfield. Uh, why don't you come help me out and, you know, get some development experience. And, uh, you know, so we ended up finding some folks to lease the building from us. And, and we, uh, we felt comfortable just sitting on it for a bit and letting some of the projects break ground around us and let the neighborhood, you know, develop for a little longer. So, which was ended up being a really helpful thing because we were pretty early back then in 2017. And, Mm. what we might have built back then is is a lot different than what we would have done today and so I'm I'm very glad that we hit the pause button and I am incredibly glad that I went to Westfield it was by far the most transformative you know mm. experience I could have possibly had and um so yeah I went to Westfield in 2017 and the projects that I was most involved with over there were um they owned this uh, 14 acre site uh, in Rhino at the north end over by, it was between like 42nd and 44th and Brighton and Windcube Street. So, you know, a couple city blocks um, in an opportunity zone by the highway, by the stock show, redevelopment, and then all of the, you know, amazing things happening in Rhino to the south. And so when I first came there, uh, they had signed up AEG to build the Mission Ballroom. And so That was a project I spent a lot of time on, uh, was that project. And then across the plaza from Mission Ballroom was a 90,000 square foot office and retail building. And then beyond those two, uh, there was a lot of you know conceptual planning and master planning and trying to lay out the proper program for such a big, basically, you know, campus. Mm. It was a a really a truly like placemaking type of development. And so um, that was incredibly fun and I am you know, so thankful to have been able to be involved in that project in any small way that I could. And so I spent a lot of time with that and then also spent a lot of time on the other side of Rhino. There is a, uh, a project called Spark, which is short for Sustainability Park. It's a 100 unit condo deal at uh, 26th and Lawrence. Um, it was uh, a really fun deal. I think it had just broken ground when I had gotten there. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time in the construction phase and, um, we had, uh, leased the anchor retail building to a restaurant out of Texas called Uchi, which was a really fun project and a beautiful Mm -hmm. building. And then did a fun thing with a, a greenhouse operation called Altius farms above Uchi. And then, um, beyond construction was really involved in the condo sale process and the marketing and, you know, uh, getting the condos sold, which was uh, a whole new world <laughs> to me. And so, um, those were the two projects I probably spent the most time working on. Um, also spent a little bit of time at Stanley marketplace, um, out in the central park neighborhood, which was a really fun project that it had already been, you know, long established by the time I got there, but got the, see how that thing operated and, um, helped a little bit with some conceptual planning of some apartments that are, I think, just wrapping up construction now, um, that are going to be really amazing. And then, um, a few other projects here and there that we had poked around at, but those were the, the main ones that I got to be involved in. And yeah, I was really a, a catch all. Um, I think my title was development associate. So I worked, Primarily uh, with with Jonathan and with uh, Kevin McClintock over there and um, and I mean everyone at the, in in the Westfield team I just I had a, a blast over there it was uh, it was a lot of learning and and uh, yeah very thankful for my time there
0: yeah that's that's really cool to be able to have cut your teeth with such a such a strong and experienced team in Denver like that because obviously not a lot of people are able to happenstance find them in a lobby to start a conversation to have a coffee to then go begin working for them that's a really cool uh um, invaluable experience that you were you were able to to have in those few years and essentially that brings us to the point where you decided hey you know what i think this might be the time for me to step out on my own start what is now cats development do something with this you know this site that we've had for a few years now and i feel fortunate enough to have run across you uh maybe a four or three or four years ago now. And so I was having conversations with you when you were thinking about it being a, a condo deal, when when you were thinking about it being a, a hotel concept. I mean, I know that you've had to go through different iterations and to your comment earlier, in a way, let the neighborhood around it grow up and sort of fill in and figure itself out. Um, so, but this this brought you to 2019, 2020. Um, where, where did the site, sit at that time and, and was Mass Timber like in the cards yet once you started to transition away from Westfield?
1: Yeah. So around that time, end of 2019, uh we had just finished Mission Ballroom, Spark was finished and most of the units were sold, or a good majority, I think, at that point. And it just it it was kind of in between projects over there. And uh it just felt like the right time to to step away and focus on the family site. It had been you know, several years that it was just sitting there. And um, I felt like I had gained a tremendous amount of experience and had the confidence to go and, and try and figure this out. And so I left um, mass timber was something that I was aware of. At that point, I had looked at it um, a little bit at Westfield, and I didn't fully understand it, but I was interested by it. Um, and um I think the thing that sparked it was uh, I had toured a project here called Plat 15 downtown along Platte Street. Um, It's an office building, five stories, and it was built out of mass timber. Mm. And I walked through it and I was just blown away uh, by what that, what mass timber actually was and what it felt like and how it looked and uh, what the construction process was like. And um, that kind of put the idea in our heads a little bit. We actually wanted to do a hotel at the time, and we uh, we were gonna try and do a, a masterbird boutique hotel, and this was again end of 2019, and so we started down that path. We brought in the design team, and we, you know, I think we had gotten to the point where our concept plan was approved by the city, which is the first, you know, very preliminary step, um, like right in February or March of 2020 and Mm. then uh, COVID hit. And we, uh, at first, we kind of just paused the project and we were like, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, We had spent a lot of time on it and just at that point, I don't think we could have really imagined not not going that direction. But it became pretty clear after a few months that, um, no, we really are not are not going to build a hotel here. It was not. Mm it was not possible at that point in time. And so uh, I think like mid 2020, we decided to cancel it, which <laughs> it, it, it definitely hurt. We were yeah. pretty excited about it, but maybe one day in the future we'll <laughs> yeah. come back.
0: And I think, I think um, if, if I remember the timeline approximately it was okay, COVID and, and obviously for a lot of people, but COVID for you guys, it was like, okay, gut check. What are we doing? Where are we headed now? Kind of like, are there other ideas here? Where can we take this? Uh, because you had owned the site for, I think, four or five years at that point, And I think that um, you had mentioned that you guys were just ready to get something rolling. Um, and for you, of course, this is your first big project as CATS development, and, and, it, and it matters. Um, let's, let's talk about this transition, because this is this is truly where Mass Timber comes into play. Your project returned to form. Um, you know, you ended up embracing it head on, but not as a, not as a hotel, it ended up becoming, it took, it took a different form, uh, pun intended, I guess, as (laughs) I say it out loud. (laughs) Um, but, but what is that form that you're, you're working on now?
1: Yeah. So we were really excited about a hotel because we felt like, you know, I, I was very lucky at Westfield to have worked on projects that, you know, mission ballroom was, it, at least in my opinion, it felt like something that added to the neighborhood. It felt like something that, you know, brought new energy and and had a culture around it and and made Rhino a, a more fun place than it even already was. And so that's kind of how we viewed a hotel on our site at that time was how can we do something that makes this neighborhood you know even better than it already is. And um, it was very disappointing when we couldn't go that route anymore. But we, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out okay what can we do here? And multifamily was not only something that we could do per the zoning, but also something that, uh, you know, we felt like it was a desirable location for multifamily. And so the first thing we were thinking through was, how do we make something within multifamily that is additive to the neighborhood? Because there's a lot of multifamily coming. You know, obviously, we have a need for housing. And every unit that we're able to bring online is incredibly helpful. But from a neighborhood culture standpoint, you know, it's hard to really quantify or see the the uh, positive impacts of multifamily projects. Not a lot of them are, you know, incredibly focused on pedestrian levels, street activation and on, you know, culture and and urban fabric. And so Mm -hmm. That was kind of some of the things we were thinking about as we pivoted away from hotel and into multifamily. And so, you know, that um, the one thing that really stuck with us as a common thread was the mass timber, because not only did we think that, you know, it was beautiful, but we, we started learning about the environmental benefits of mass timber when compared to traditional construction methods like concrete and steel and we started learning about other projects in other markets that were using mass timber and kind of watching those processes. And eventually we were like, you know, this is, this is it. It's, um, we, well, we had a few other thoughts as well. We were a a small little site, our site's about a quarter of an acre, and we have some dense zoning so we can go up to 12 stories, but, you know, we always knew it was going to be a small project and almost all of the buildings in Rhino. Are big and they have big beefy amenities. They've got you know the big pool decks. They've got uh, you know all of the all of the the fancy things. And we knew with the size of our site, we just weren't going to be able to provide everything that these big you know massive four to five hundred unit complexes were were doing. And mm-hmm. so the the key word that we were you know latched onto was differentiation. How can we differentiate? We're going to be, you know, around a hundred units in this sea of, there's currently 3000 units under construction. How do we stand out? Because if we try and do what these other people are doing, you know, we're not going to win. We're not going to win if we try and compete with drivetrain or if we try and compete with, you know, some of these just, uh, Mill Creek projects or any of the other ones that Carmel partners are building They're they're just a different product. And so. You know, one of the ways that we thought we could stand out was using mass timber, both from an aesthetic differentiation standpoint, because um, as we can get into later, it's it's a totally different look. Your your unit, you know, it, it's you have the exposed wood ceilings, you have exposed columns and beams, your whole living area is, you know, covered in wood, which is um, yeah. obviously different aesthetically, but then also just... The narrative of of doing something in the construction industry that is forward thinking and that you know is hopefully a path forward for the industry that is a little less harmful on the environment and so you know that's kind of the the mess of thoughts that we had that have created mm-hmm. the mass timber motif there
0: yeah and i guess to name drop a few other projects because we were talking about how you know you had kind of had this loose vision in your mind, but you know, you were also aware of, uh, ascent being built in, uh, Milwaukee at the time. Um, I remember you talking about hotel Magdalena in Austin quite a bit as one that you really enjoyed, obviously plat 15 that you mentioned, uh, previous in this conversation, you know, the, the CLT or the mass timber piece seemed to sort of stick with you at that time. And, and you were alluding to, it's not just about the design. It's not just about kind of figuring out who you're competing against, but the real thing here is actually the, the, the planet and how, you know, it's not just like a nice to have, it it literally is so much better for the planet and for the development of the building, um, at its core, what are some of the ways that mass timber is, um, legitimately better for the planet, um, from an emission standpoint, just out of curiosity.
1: Yeah. So, I I can speak high level, but I'm definitely not qualified so take it with <laughs> a grain of salt. Yeah, but, fair um, enough. you know, the basic idea is that some 40% of our global carbon emissions come from buildings and they come from building buildings and from the operations of buildings. And so when you dive into the construction of buildings, a majority of those carbon emissions come from the, the construction with, you know, concrete and steel. Uh, they're just incredibly... Energy-intensive processes to to work with, and um, they just they emit a lot of carbon during the process. And so, the way that mass timber works at a high level is, you have trees that are grown in sustainably harvested forests. Um, as trees grow and um, and get taller, they actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere, and they trap it in their limbs. And so, you know, trees they pull the most carbon out. When they're young, and so as they get older and mature, uh, there, you know, there becomes a time when they they aren't pulling as much carbon from the atmosphere, and so there's kind of this like ideal point in time in a tree's life where you want to harvest that tree. It's pulled a majority of its carbon out of the air. Uh, you cut it down, you replant the new tree in its place, and you take the trees, and you can basically. Uh, create these engineered wood products called mass timber which you know is kind of an umbrella term for a lot of different products Uh, Mm -hmm. some of the more popular ones are called cross laminated timber which is um, for you know floor and ceiling decks basically just different layers of of timber kind of laid in in a cross pattern and and glued together and compressed to form these big thick panels Uh, then there's uh, other products called glue lamb which are really good for columns and beams. Um, There's, um, there's LVL, there's uh, NLT, there's DLT, there's all different kinds of of mass timber products out there that are that are all really cool and innovative. And um, so essentially, what you have is these kind of almost uh, componentized, you know, building materials, these columns, beams, and then floor and ceiling decks, that essentially store carbon. Because they all of the carbon that the trees pulled out of the atmosphere when they were harvested is trapped still in these products that then, you know, come to the site and um, are installed very quickly and become the superstructure of the building. And so rather than the structure being made out of a very energy intensive material like concrete or steel, it's it's made with these wood, you know, members that that are storing carbon in them mm. and will continue to store carbon forever for the life of the wood. And, yeah, uh, yeah so that's high level how it's different from, from concrete and
0: steel. And, and I'm sure that there are, um, naysayers out there, right. That, that point to cutting down tree, trees as being a really bad thing, actually, you know, it's actually, yeah, they, they pull carbon out of the atmosphere, but you're cutting them down. Mm-hmm. Um, how can this be good? Can you explain again, feel free to, to <laughs> hang, hang the banner of the disclaimer of you yep. know, high level. But uh, I know, you know, a thing or two about this. Um, why, why does it, why does it work and how does it work? Because you would think, okay, if I'm cutting down a bunch of trees in a forest, mm-hmm. that's a problem. You know, that's a problem. How can that be sustainable?
1: Yeah. So the, it's a great question. I get it all the time. Uh, again, I'm still not qualified to answer it <laughs> properly, but from what I know, the, uh, the key here is that you have to work with forests that are sustainably managed. And so essentially, what that means is that, um, you know, if you have a, if you have a North American forest, or, you know, they have forest, uh, privately owned forest lands all over the world, really, but um, let's just use a a North American one, for example, Um, you know, it's a, for the most part, it's a for profit industry. And so, you know, these, these lumber mills, they harvest wood, they convert them to different wood products, and they do that at a profit. And so um, when it comes to mass timber, and the thought of cutting down trees being bad for the environment, well, in reality, uh, it does a lot of things to cut down trees. So number one is, like I mentioned before, um, trees do stop sequestering and pulling carbon from the atmosphere at a high rate as they hit a certain age. And so You know, just leaving a forest untouched is not necessarily the best thing when it comes to to pulling carbon from the air. And so harvesting trees is a good thing from that perspective. It's also just an overall capitalism thing, right? Like if you are operating as a profitable forest and it's a product that's in high demand is mass timber and people are building with it, then you're going to continue operating that forest land as a for-profit lumber mill. And if Amazon or somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to buy, you know, 800 acres from you, and I'm going to turn it into an industrial park or a distribution center, that's where we get into problems with forest land is clear cutting. And so Mm -hmm. if you have a healthy lumber economy, and it's profitable to continue to operate these mills, um, they're harvesting just a, a tiny little fraction of the amount of forest land that they have available right now, like, we're not running out of trees anytime soon. And every time they harvest, they're continually replanting because it's in their best interest as a business. And so, you know, whenever people bring this up, that's always what I come back to is the real problem is if there's no interest or demand in forest products and, or in wood products, and it's more profitable for these folks to sell their land and go do something else. And that's when we Mm. lose the trees permanently. Yeah.
0: Well, so forests, the forest issue aside, there still are many other issues and or question marks that come up with mass timber development. Fire is one of them. Uh, just how how the longevity of the structures are is, is another. Um, some of the things that I would love to dig into as we start to wrap up have to do with the challenges that you've faced, because I know it hasn't been just one. Um, and I know quite a few are actually focused around just the the way that the current code is written the building code is written in general. Can you dive into some of those challenges that you faced? And um, if you've been able to find a success here or there, feel free to highlight that as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So when we first started down this path, we knew that there were some code challenges involved with building mass timber at certain heights. And so like I mentioned, Plat 15, I think, was one of Denver's first mass timber buildings. It's five stories. and uh, as you go up in height, it, it gets a little more challenging. So for just a little bit of backstory, um, the, uh, the 2021 International Building Code introduced mass timber as a building type for the first time in, um, in three different types of construction. So it's type four heavy timber, and it's type four A, which is the tallest, type four B, which is kind of a mid range, and then type four C, which is the shortest. And so that kind of breaks down to Uh, You can go up 18 stories in type A, um, around 12 stories in type B, and then seven or eight stories in type C. And so as you increase in height, there were these regulations on how much of the CLT ceilings were allowed to be exposed, how much of the wood could be unprotected Mm. by, you know, gyp or drywall. And that was all based on some older fire safety testing that had been done um, and, you know, it was, it was a very conservative kind of metric. So, for example, if you wanted to build 18 stories in Type 4A, you are required to cover 100% of the wood. There can be no exposed wood in that structure oh, wow. um, from a fire concern standpoint. And so in Type 4B, which is where we knew our project would end up at 12 stories, uh, that limit was at 20%. So we were only allowed to expose 20% of those CLT ceilings and those wood columns and beams uh, in the structure. And that is a big challenge for us. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, it's it's a challenge on a number of fronts. But basically, um, overall, mass timber is more expensive than concrete or steel. It's just a a more expensive material. Um, But there are ways that you can claw back, you know, that cost premium and bring it into a more competitive place with concrete and steel. And one of the places that you can do that is through, uh, finished materials. You know, if you're building a concrete building and it's multifamily, chances are you're going to want to finish the ceilings with, with drywall. And if you're able to expose the mass timber, that's a big cost saver is not having to to cover up, you know, a right eighty percent of your ceiling,
0: huge, huge saver, I would imagine.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> definitely a big, a big deal, and it's also just it defeats the purpose. The whole yeah, the, the just,
0: aesthetic is lost.
1: Yeah, you lose the aesthetic, but also you're covering this renewable resource that's storing carbon with a toxic, non reusable and non renewable right. resource like drug. Mm-hmm. And so it just it didn't work for a number of reasons. And so when we started, we knew that would be a hurdle we were going to have to figure out, or else we couldn't build this building and so i think it was greg kingsley with klna uh, our structural engineer who introduced me to a group of folks that uh, they had written the 2021 international building codes um it was a group of of incredibly smart architects and fire protection engineers and just building engineers and mass timber advocates and um you know i was connected with them i i was told that they were working on an amendment to the international building code that you should be able to expose 100% of the CLT in a type 4B structure, which again, was ours up to 12 stories based on some new fire safety testing that had been done that proved, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that mass timber performs at a superior level in a fire comparable to concrete and and probably better than steel more predictable Mm. than steel. Um, And so I got linked up with this group of people. And I said, hey, we're building this project. We need this amendment to go through. How can we help? And uh, they said, can you be in Pittsburgh in like three days? And I said, sure. <laughs> um, and so sure. I got yeah, got on a plane and went to Pittsburgh and met up with these folks at the, uh, the annual or the International Code Council meeting, which is, I think it's on a three year cycle, but it's essentially this big meeting where they go through and they update the international building code with new amendments and new new code language. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, it was a very interesting convention. And so um, I went out there with this group of people. Again, I am completely unqualified to be there. Um, But they uh, they were there to testify in support of this amendment that they had put forth to the Code Council that we should be able to expose 100 percent of the timber. And so uh, I was there with this group. We, we testified and support. Um, I think they kind of wanted my perspective from a developer as to why I cared about this at all, because again, I'm in a room of, you know, engineers and fire experts and architects and um, you know, code specialists. And so I kind of spoke from my, from my, you know, passion behind Mastember and and why I think it was important from a, from a, sustainability perspective and why end users um, you know would would appreciate it and why there's demand for it. And so we had to debate essentially against ready-mixed concrete and against uh, chipcrete lobbyists and you know all sorts of folks that wanted to or are afraid rather of mass timber you know becoming a bigger uh, Mm -hmm. piece of the market share in high-rise construction. And so Mm. In the end, the data, you know, won, and this amendment was passed at the 2024 International Building Code level. So now, in 2024 IBC, you are allowed to expose 100% of the CLT up to 12 stories. And so, you know, that was a huge win. And we took that to the City of Denver, and Greg Kingsley went to basically Denver's version of the Code Update Committee and said, "Hey, this just got approved in 2024." Uh, international building code can we can we bring this forth early Uh, you know it's a big hurdle in the adoption of mass timber and it's coming down the pipe so we should just do it now and luckily the city of Denver is very supportive of mass timber and um, it was approved unanimously and so Denver became one of the first cities in the country to adopt this amendment um, early ahead of the 2024 Mm. code update and so essentially what that does is if you're building, uh, you know, a building that is between eight and twelve stories, now instead of being limited to concrete, steel, and light steel, uh, you are allowed to build with mass timber and expose a hundred percent of the CLT. And so, you know, it's a big game changer for any project in that height range.
0: Yeah, Andrew, you've you've been—I um, know you didn't ask for it—but you've been promoted to somewhat of a spokesperson for mass timber at this point, uh, on a few different levels. And I think it's been really cool to see that from, uh, just from a locale perspective, but someone that I know personally, it's been really cool to see you sort of share your knowledge and, and educate others along the way. I'm going to ask you a really big question here before we start to wrap up. And it is like looking ahead. What, what are your hopes for mass timber development in general in the U S is, is there a thought or two that comes to mind that. you're like, Hey man, I'm on podcasts like this and I'm, I'm answering the same questions all the time. What do I want to have come out of this? Uh, what comes to mind for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we're on the path, but I, I just think that mass timber should be something that is always considered or always in the conversation when it comes to new project development. Uh, it has a tremendous number of challenges and it's a very different process than concrete or steel when it comes to design and procurement and strategy and and the way that you build your your team. Um, But I mean, my goal is that we're going to build this mass timber building in Rhino. And for a little bit, we might be the only mass timber building at that height in the city. But I really hope that that is overtaken quickly. And I hope that it doesn't become this race of like, who's the tallest building in it, you know, in every city or every neighborhood. I think it should just, you know, in a perfect world, it becomes mainstream. And it's going to be a question of why isn't this building built out of mass timber and um you know i just hope that the end users start to recognize it and understand the environmental impacts of it compared to concrete or steel i hope that it drives office tenants decisions to lease office space and buildings that have more of a, a climate initiative around the construction and operation i hope that other design standards like passive house and Electric building operations start to become more mainstream too. I know Denver's on the front foot of electrification because half of the forty percent of global carbon emissions comes from the building's actual operations, and so I think that's a really important piece to the the puzzle too. And so, you know, tough question, but I I just think that mm-hmm. in in the end, if if a majority or a I, it's never going to be a majority. There are plenty of of you know instances where mass timber doesn't make sense, but if if buildings that you know it's viable for mass timber were built in that way, I think that that would be a huge win for yeah you know the environment and and the private real estate market and the end users.
0: Yeah, Andrew, I love I love the the point of view. I love the perspectives here. Let me hit you with a few rapid fire questions uh, before I I roll out the red carpet for you. Tell me what's the most exciting project or two that you've seen in the last year that has to do with mass timber.
1: So bias, just hometown, uh, you know, bias, but T3 and Rhino is an office building that Heinz is building right now over at 35th and Blake. Um, and it's a, I think it's a 240,000 square foot office building, but it's just, uh, It's an an incredible program that Heinz, that Heinz is doing around the country that's really focused on transit and mass timber. And it's a beautiful building. If you're in the neighborhood, it's going up right now. And you can see all of the exposed wood as they as they install the structure. So very excited about that one. And then also very excited about um, the uh, the Portland Airport um, PDX is getting a brand new roof that's entirely made out of locally sourced. Uh, mass timber, and it's just incredible looking. I had the, the fortune to be able to check it out um, about a year ago, and it was under construction. And I think that they are starting to install it maybe, I think, at this mm. point in the year. Um, but I can't wait to fly into Portland one day and and have that, cool. that ceiling be installed. It's amazing.
0: I'll be sure to add these links into our show notes so for the, the watchers or listeners, they can easily check these things out and get a look for themselves. All right. One book that you would recommend right now would be what?
1: One book. Well, it's kind of like a real estate nerdy book, but I just finished this book called The New Kings of New York that I really liked. It was a super interesting look into some of the bigger real estate projects and developers in New York Hmm. that, that, you know, got me excited, but maybe not for everyone. (laughs)
0: Well, um, Andrew, thank you so much again for joining me today. I always like to say there's one more thing for me to do, and that is to roll out the obligatory red carpet for you, tell the world what you're up to and where they can find you online.
1: Yeah. So you'll find me just continuing to work on this project, Return to Form. It's the 12-story mass timber deal in Rhino at 35th and Wincoop Street. Uh, our website is uh, cats-dev.com. I'm on LinkedIn sometimes. I'm on Twitter sometimes. Um, I'm around the neighborhood, so if you see me in Denver. You can say hey!
0: Awesome, Andrew. Thanks again for joining me today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's fun. Yeah.